Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Attention to Detail. This is Jacob joining you as always. My apologies for the little break in the action there for a little while. I was I was teaching a conducting workshop on Zoom all of last week. That was a very interesting experience to to try to teach conducting in a socially distanced manner, but but very fun. Um, but I want to talk today about a very exciting project that we're going to be doing here at, at Attention to Detail, similar to one that we did before. For the whole month of August, we did our 10 days, 10 Mahler symphonies project. And now I've decided what I would like to do is review the Ring Cycle by Richard Wagner. And it turns out, like our 10 Mahler symphonies, this divides pretty evenly into 10 chunks. The Ring Cycle is a cycle of four operas by Richard Wagner. The first one is a kind of prelude in one act, and then each of the subsequent operas has three acts, so that parses nicely into 10 episodes. Unlike the 10 Days, 10 Mahler Symphonies project, we're gonna spread these out a little bit, and so this will be taking place over the month of August. But it's something I'm really excited about, and why the ring cycle, why this piece, why this composer, um, I want to talk briefly about that here on this introductory episode. Firstly, I think, and I think many people think, it's fantastic music. It's spellbinding music. It's music unlike we have heard to this point in history and kind of, in some ways, unlike we would ever hear after. Although we'll talk about the enormous influence that Wagner had on on those who came came after him. But... So it's, it's great music, but I also think one of the biggest barriers to entry, one of the biggest challenges that listeners have with Wagner is that it is very inaccessible. I think purely at the level of these operas are insanely long. And so if you've heard the adjective Wagnerian used in, in everyday conversation, that's come to mean one of two things, either incredibly bombastic and grandiose or incredibly long. And I think both of those things could be said about Wagner's work. And they are said about Wagner's work, and it turns a lot of people off from listening to these pieces. But that's what this project is for here on Attention to Detail. Of course, our idea on this podcast is that listening to classical music is for everybody, and we try to make it a little easier, a little more accessible for people. And so we are kind of going to do the Spark Notes musical version of these massive operas. We'll actually be cutting out large chunks of, of plot development, summarizing them, and large chunks of music, and hitting what I believe to be the highlights. Now, we should say something about that, which is that very frequently, if you've gone to several classical concerts, you may have experienced a night of Wagner at, at a concert hall or something. It's very common for symphony orchestras to play orchestral interludes from the Ring Cycle or other Wagner operas. And so in those type of things, people have extracted the music between scenes or music where Wagner was writing solely for the orchestra with no singing. And those are some fantastic musical moments, and they make for great concerts. And we'll be reviewing a lot of that music. But I also think there's a lot of great music 
interspersed with the plot action, with the singing, with the dialogue of sorts. And so my hope is that we'll be able to kind of get a lot of that music, see what Wagner is doing in these incredible pieces, see what he's doing musically in, in, in a more comprehensive manner than just listening to these interludes, but also we'll be saving a lot of time and effort and all this stuff so you don't have to sit down and watch and listen to the a five and a half hour opera and then probably go back and watch five more times because there's so much content there that you're trying to to process. So that's the goal here in this kind of spark notesy version of the ring cycle. And some words about Wagner himself. I mean, I think Wagner is also thought of to many as a composer that you either absolutely love or absolutely hate, a composer that you need to have a ideological take on because as many of our listeners will know, he was a wildly polemical figure in history. He held some incredibly abhorrent views. He was really an egotist at, at his core and in many ways just a really bad, bad person. And so he's he's become associated with so many terrible, terrible ideological movements from the early seeds of anti-Semitism to He's thought of as a composer that was loved by Hitler and the Nazi regime. And so Wagner comes with enormous amounts of well-deserved baggage. And so I think people are fascinated, albeit horrified, by his his character. And in a way, that makes his his music even more interesting, whether it be uh, repulsive or alluring or whatever whatever it may be. Um, so Wagner is an incredibly controversial figure and that, that there's no way to divorce that from his music. Now, I am primarily concerned with his music, being a musician myself, this being a podcast about music. I'm not really here in these 10 episodes that we're going to do to take a, a big ideological stand on Wagner whether he should be performed or not performed. I, I think it's um, indisputable that he held incredibly abhorrent views and he was a anti-Semitic uh, person. And, and so in that sense, of course, his being, I, I am strong, I, you know, and I would hope every single one of our listeners strongly disavows so many of his views that, that he held. And I think it's really important for us to, to know about those when we engage with Wagner's music. But there's been huge debate over whether Wagner should be performed. Wagner was not performed in Israel for a long time. Um, If we should uh, account for composers' abhorrent views when we're assessing the quality of their music. And I wouldn't consider myself an expert on those debates. I have my own personal thoughts on it. And of course, as a performer, I've thought about this endlessly and tried to come up with what I think is a an appropriate and moral and ethical approach to this dilemma. But again, I'm not an expert and that is not really what these podcasts are meant to deal with primarily. Of course, we'll, we'll touch on these subjects as we go through the music, but I'm more concerned with what I also find to be indisputably incredible, albeit revolutionary and very interesting music. So that's what we're going to be engaging with on these next 10 episodes. 
So to do that, uh, I'd like to give a brief overview on this intro of Wagner's life, a very interesting life, um, and where the ring cycle fits into that, why we chose the ring cycle specifically for this cycle, um, our own cycle, 10-day cycle of, of podcasts here. So Wagner was born in Leipzig, um, East Germany, and from a pretty early age, he showed these kind of revolutionary tendencies. He got a job in Dresden as the master of opera there, and he was involved in, in 1848. He was born in 1813, I should mention. And in 1848, uh, 1849, in fact, in Dresden, but in 1848, there were revolutions around Europe, and they made their way to Dresden in 1849, and Wagner was involved. He was a kind of socialist, um, incredibly liberal thinker at that time. He was involved. He, he, his friends included the likes of Mikhail Bakunin, a very influential Russian socialist who visited Dresden frequently. And so Wagner was there himself on the ramparts of the revolutions in 1849. And for that, he earned himself exile from from Saxony. So he moved to Switzerland where he lived a large portion of his life in exile. And while in Switzerland, in a period of exile, kind of (laughs) quarantine, we might think of it like many of us are going through today, all of these ideas gestated and he began writing. This is where the origins of his anti-Semitic writings come from. Um, terrible, terrible writings and not worth even really dealing with on this podcast. But he also wrote some some essays, a book on aesthetics and his ideas about opera and drama and what he was starting to call the artwork of the future. And in this time in exile, he was gestating on these ideas of music, poetry, dance, these ancient Greek art forms, he saw the Greeks as the, the pinnacle of, of early civilization. And he thought the Greeks fused these art forms in a, a really incredible way in some of their plays. And, um, and he wanted to replicate that in an artwork of the future that fused the ideas of music, poetry, and dance or drama. So he started writing about this and he started writing librettos to operas as well. And so in reverse order, he started writing the, the four librettos for the operas of the ring, starting with the final opera, Götterdammerung, and moving backwards through Siegfried, Valkyrie, and Das Rheingold, which is the first of the four. So he finished those in the early 1850s and then he got a start on the music while he was still in Switzerland. He had some... Uh, very, very tenuous and fiery uh, romantic affairs during this time that all flamed out. He, this was a theme in his life that he would get embroiled in relationships that flamed out. He never paid back his debtors. He was a really inconsistent and tumultuous person to be around in many ways, albeit a massively egotistical person. Um, but he ended up moving he to... Venice first, then to Paris, and then his work got noticed by the new king of Bavaria, Ludwig II, the king who ended up building Neuschwanstein Castle. He was kind of thought of as this fairy king. He ascended to the throne when he was only 18 years old, 
and he was kind of infatuated with Wagner. Some think he was actually in love with Wagner, and he became Wagner's biggest patron. And Wagner took some time off from the ring after he finished the second act of Siegfried, the third opera. He took a big, long break. He ended up writing two operas in the interim, Tristan and Isolde and Die Meistersinger. Um, Tristan and Isolde, phenomenally influential opera that some people see as the beginning of musical modernism. This opera paved the way for so many, like Debussy, early Schoenberg in a way. It was wildly, wildly influential. But that was kind of just on his break from the ring cycle. And he wrote this other opera, Meistersinger. And then he came back and finished the ring cycle, finishing the third act of Siegfried and Goethe Damerung. And around the time that he finished, he was starting to build himself an opera house in the town of Bayreuth, which has since become this kind of mecca for Wagnerites. His opera house still stands there today, and every year they perform only his operas, and it's this kind of pilgrimage that people make to this city of Bayreuth to see his operas performed in this opera house that he designed himself, where they really try to realize all of his visions of this kind of artwork of the future. It's a little bit weird. It's a... Um, people have their thoughts on on people going and kind of making this pilgrimage to such a, to such a controversial and at times abhorrent person. And, uh, it's very cultish in a way, but that's, that's what it is. That's Bayreuth and it exists today. And there's a seven year waiting list or something like that for tickets. So if you're interested, you might as well put your name in now because it takes a very long time. Um, but at Bayreuth is where he really fully realized this vision of the artwork of the future, where he designed the opera house, he designed the pit, he designed the staging. It was all about Wagner all the time, and he had kind of fused everything. It's important to note that he was the writer of his own librettos, which was not common. And so, again, in classic Wagner ego fashion, he wrote all of his material, he composed all of his material, he fused all of his material, he was the stage director, uh, he was the composer, he was the writer. So that is The Ring Cycle. Um, it's four operas, and what what is it actually, uh, outside of being four operas? Well, it's this story based on various elements of North, Norse mythology, um, the Norse Edda, uh, the Nibelung Lied, which is another song of, of Norse mythology, and some the Volsung Saga. He kind of fused a lot of these Norse myths into his own story. And the story we will, the actual story we'll cover as we go through the operas, and uh, it's a very intricate story, as you can imagine, with there being over 19 hours of, of plot and music. We're going to kind of do a uh, crash course through it and not touch on all of the subtle elements of what happens in the story. But the story itself and the drama, Wagner being the dramatist as well as the composer, has attracted enormous amounts of analysis, criticism, Personally, I happen to think that Wagner was far, far better of a composer than a dramatist or a writer. I don't find the story to be particularly profound. 
many probably would disagree with me. I don't find the text to be particularly profound. Um, what I do find to be interesting and, and noteworthy is, is the way in which he changed what drama could be in the context of opera. And we will talk a little bit about that. But the story, as I mentioned, has attracted numerous interpretations. There's an enormous essay by George Bernard Shaw, the, the playwright, about the ring cycle, this kind of socialist, communist interpretation of the plot. He really keys in on scenes like the third scene of Das Rheingold, the first opera, where they go into this mine and you hear these anvils and he sees that as this portrayal of capitalist society and everything that is terrible about um, the greed and uh, money grabbing that's associated with, with capitalism. And there's also been numerous Freudian, Jungian interpretations, psychological interpretations of the ring and the various characters. People have just been fascinated by the story. But I, as I mentioned, am more fascinated by the music and the music of the ring cycle, which is kind of a realization of all of his musical and dramatic ideas that were gestating over a period of 20 years, we might say. Um, is it what, what, what we get in the end of, you know, when it's all said and done in these 19 hours of music is this incredibly revolutionary, new, fascinating system of writing music that exists in this opera, the ring cycle that he would use in, in other operas. And that has now come to be a system of writing music that is almost commonplace in the world, not only in classical music, but certainly in film music, in musicals, any sort of dramatic uh, endeavor that involves music. And that system was outlined in his book, Opera and Drama, as we mentioned in 1851. And it's important to understand the the level of um, innovation involved in this system it's, it's good to know what was going on in opera before then. Opera before then, if you've ever heard an opera by Mozart, by Rossini, by Gluck, by Meyerbeer, by a Baroque opera, any opera that predated Wagner, it was largely ma- based on the ideas of recitative and aria. So like a musical, recitative were moments of plot movement where it was kind of spoken slash sung. And aria was a static moment of plot where the character plants on stage and sings about something that they're feeling or that just happened. It's like a musical where you got some plot and then you've got a song and you clap after arias usually and arias are very melody driven. If you've ever seen a Rossini opera or something, you're supposed to go away humming all of these great tunes. And Wagner was really against, for whatever reason, he was against all of those ideas because they didn't serve his concept of what he called Gesamtkunstwerk, or total artwork. Instead, what he developed was, he took away all of those things, aria, recitative, even melody for the most part. He wrote through composed operas, so operas that don't stop, they don't have really moments of aria or moments of recitative, or here's a clear song, here's a clear moment of plot development. It's through composed, and so there's constantly music and drama and plot development going on all at the same time. 
and some musical interludes interspersed. And he also stripped away the conventional sense of melody in favor of a technique that was dubbed leitmotif, I don't think by Wagner, but by some critics after Wagner. And the technique of leitmotif is one of the most important developments that Wagner introduced in the history of music that has become one of the most important elements of musical composition that remains today and is used all over the place. And what a leitmotif is, is a short motif or idea that represents a character, an idea, a feeling, some element of the story that the music represents. And in in the few notes that's contained in this leitmotivic idea, it's supposed to capture some psychological or some narrative element of one of these characters, ideas, feelings that's going on on stage. And so Wagner's music is just this web of consistently changing, interacting leitmotifs. And so what you hear in his operas is just a constant stream of short ideas, leitmotivic ideas that have come over the course of the opera to represent many things. Now, music critics have tried to attach names to these leitmotifs to figure out what all of them are, to assign them. There's somewhere between 70 and 200 different leitmotifs that Wagner is using in these operas, but he weaves them together in this incredibly interesting fashion. So the effect that you get is that stuff is going on on stage and you hear the leitmotif that's meant to represent what's going on on stage in the music. And sometimes the leitmotif can signal something about a character's intentions, their psychological makeup, something like that, that the words don't even say to us. So if we hear the leitmotif of greed while someone is talking about how they want to, they want someone to just walk out of the room for a little bit, we know that there's some sinister motive there, which is given to us exclusively by the music. And this technique of leitmotif you may be familiar with in the context of something like film because it has been used masterfully by film composers for years and years. In fact, one excellent demonstration of a score that's just a a web of leitmotifs, much like the Ring score, is in fact the score to the Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien was fascinated with Wagner, and if you, there's many, many parallels in the story of the Lord of the Rings and the Ring Cycle. For one, there's a ring that kind of rules everything. There's the Hobbit and the three books, just like there's Das Rheingold, which is a prelude, and the three main operas. I mean, there's numerous parallels. But on top of that, for the movies of the Lord of the Rings, the composer... Howard Shore decided to use a leitmotivic system. And so you'd probably recognize, actually, if you've seen those movies, a lot of the most famous leitmotifs that he uses to represent elements of the plot of Lord of the Rings. So let me play for you one, a couple of those. Um, here, for example, is the leitmotif that we hear when someone talks about, it's kind of associated with the the ring and the grip that the ring has on its possessor at that time. So here's a leitmotif from the Lord of the Rings soundtrack. 
Now, anyone who's seen Lord of the Rings, you probably recognize that. It happens all over the place. Now, listen to, just, just as an example of these leitmotifs in Wagner, here's the ring motif, which comes many, many times in Wagner, very similar motif to what you hear in, in Lord of the Rings. So it's just a few little notes, but that comes all over the place, and it re represents the ring uh, and the sinister nature of the ring, which you can kind of hear implied in that music. Now, one thing that's interesting about Wagner's system is that, which I'll demonstrate over the course of these episodes, is that a lot of these motifs are interrelated, and they speak to more deep connections in some of the elements of the plot. So one thing we'll see next time on our review of Das Rheingold is that this ring motif is actually very similar to the Valhalla motif, which is this home for the gods that, that one of the characters constructs and we encounter in, in scene two. And so what Wagner is doing there is an added level of, of profundity or depth in that these motifs are often interrelated in a way that suggests something, a deeper connection between elements of the plot, like somehow the ring and Valhalla are, are bound together with this more powerful force than just narrative action. There's something more deep-seated there that, that we hear in the connection of the motifs. So it's a fascinating system. I want to play you just because this is fun. I want to play you one more from Lord of the Rings and we can hear the similar motif in in the ring cycle so here's the what's called the Isengard theme if you know the character of Saruman or these orcs that you, you associate this theme with them it's a very cool theme in in 5-4 um, this is where I get to nerd out a little bit musically but here's the Isengard light motif from Lord of the Rings and then we'll listen to a similar one from from Wagner So again, like Wagner, it's a short idea that gets played over and over and over again. But when we hear that, we think orcs, that imposing tower. Now, here's a similar motif. This is when, in the third scene of Rheingold, when they enter this mine that I mentioned before, and these are people slaving away at work. Very similar to, if you remember the scene at Isengard, where the, the orcs are slaving away in this hot furnace. Um, it's supposed to be almost exactly the same. It's kind of a a, a mimicking of, of the scene in, in the ring cycle. And I think Tolkien probably took it right from there. These are dwarfs instead of orcs, but they're smithing metal just like in Lord of the Rings. And here's what that sounds like in Wagner's ring cycle. Now, that's a cool moment that we'll we'll talk about more because that's this whole, there's this anvil chorus. The anvils completely take over and that's all we hear for a while and it's supposed to be kind of deafening in a way. It's a very cool moment in, in that opera, but we'll talk about that later. So in any, in any case, Wagner composes this kind of web of interconnected, interrelated, interacting leitmotifs and it makes for an incredibly interesting musical texture. That being said, one major criticism 
of that many people have of Wagner is that his operas are super long and a lot of times the music is relatively uninteresting because, and I tend to kind of agree with that in some ways because a lot of the music, especially in the first three operas, and this is something that Shaw points to very, very keenly in his review, um, which you can read if you want to. It's a little bit of a stretch in my opinion, but it's, it's interesting. Um, but in any case, what he points to is the fact that, as, as I mentioned, Wagner took this big break after the second act of Siegfried and then came back to writing this many years later. And I think we can notice a stylistic difference because in his original theory, which he, again, had, had thought of and was gestating in the early 1850s, he really saw music as a kind of subsidiary or secondary force to drama and poetry. That was kind of the the basis of his his idea, and the music was meant to kind of enhance or supplement what was going on on stage, but not be the star. And so we really hear that, I think, in his first three operas, because I think musically, they're just not all the time super interesting. And we can certainly see his incredible prowess as a composer in the in the moments that are musically interesting. And those are the ones that we're going to highlight. And I don't mean to say that there isn't incredible music in the first three operas, because there is. But when we see this stylistic shift over those the break, when he took time off, wrote Tristan, wrote Meisterzinger, he also encountered the work of Schopenhauer, which he said was maybe the most formative part of his experience as a composer. And Schopenhauer really believed that music was the, the most primary and most influential, most important form of art. Um, I don't really, I'm not an expert by any means on Schopenhauer, so I don't want to go much further than that. But, but a, a, I guess according to Wagner, this was a huge, huge development in his life, and Schopenhauer really saw music as kind of a higher form of artwork than, than drama, than poetry, than dance. And so we see the music get elevated in the last opera, Götterdammerung, and in the last act of Siegfried. And so there, there's less of these kind of lull moments than what we have in the first three operas. And that is, I think, a, a fair criticism of Wagner, is that it gets a little long because really what he's great at is the music. I don't think he's a great dramatist. That Again, I said that before, that's just my opinion. But I always wait for these moments of great music that come, I mean, there's, there's a lot of time that you have to wait often in these operas, but when they come, they're so incredible that it makes it worth it. But here, we're going to condense them for you, and they're going to be, you know, we're just going to pick out these great moments, show you what's going on, look at this incredible system that he's dealing with. He was also fascinated with key relations, and so the musical keys that we end up being in, that's not going to be super important that you know what that is or be able to hear that, but just to know that there are many different musical keys. There are 24 of them, in fact. And like many composers after Wagner, he uses certain keys to specify or mean certain things. And so like leitmotif, that's another area that he really uses to signal the kind of atmosphere that's going on or the world that we're inhabiting at that moment through a musical device. Now, I think the influence of Wagner cannot be understated. As we've already seen, he had a massive influence on Tolkien and, and film composers. 
Other modernist authors, James Joyce, Proust, Baudelaire, Virginia Woolf, all of them were massively influenced by Richard Wagner. Every composer from the from the early 20th century, late 19th century, had in some way to grapple with the phenomenon of Wagner. And in fact, many, many composers early in their careers, even ones that you might not expect, happened to be staunch Wagnerites. And we should mention when Wagner was composing, he and the composer Johannes Brahms were seen as, as kind of polar opposites. Brahms wrote what was called absolute music. He was a conservative, especially he was at least a conservative in in the musical sense. He looked back to Bach, to Mozart, to Beethoven. And Wagner was, of course, a revolutionary. He wanted to upend the world of opera, the world of music. He wrote highly progressive works. His harmonic language was incredibly exploratory. And so they were seen as representing two totally different paths in the history of music and kind of aesthetic ideas about how classical music should be written, at least in the kind of Austro-Germanic tradition. And so composers who we think of as as falling very much on the side of Brahms, or at least partially on the side of Brahms, like Arnold, Arnold Schoenberg, Mahler to a certain extent, these composers happen to be big Wagnerites early in their in their lives. I won't play really clips now, but if you want to go listen, you could listen to a little bit of Schoenberg's Gura Leader, one of his early pieces. This is a massive, massive piece for over 200 players on the scope of a Wagner opera and also highly Wagnerian language, hyper-romantic, huge orchestration. And shortly after that, Schoenberg would, would become this composer of completely atonal, backwards-looking works in many ways. I mean, they were atonal, so he was a revolutionary, but also he saw himself as in this kind of line from Bach to Mozart to Beethoven to Brahms. So he wrote concertos and suites and sonatas and um, things that Brahms would have written, certainly not things that Wagner would have written. Debussy, too, before he really formed this kind of impressionistic, hazy language that we associate with, with the French modernists, he wrote a piece like La Damoiselle Elou, which I highly recommend you go listen to. It sounds a little bit French and a little bit Debussy-esque, but really Wagnerian. Also this kind of oratorio with singers and a choir. And then there were the composers like Mahler's early works are very Wagnerian. And then there were the composers like Bruckner, who was so dedicated to Wagner. He saw him as his like patron saint. He dedicated almost every symphony he ever wrote to Wagner. You have Strauss, who is very Wagnerian in many ways. Um, many of his early works, many of his late works, owe an enormous amount to Wagner's uh, scope, Wagner's use of harmony. And so his influence, I don't think, can really be understated, at least in the world of music. And it, I think also in every other sphere almost. I mean, we've talked, we've, we've brushed on the idea of Wagner being a composer that was co-opted by the the Nazi regime in in the 1930s and 40s and he's been inextricably linked with all of the the terror and atrocity that ensued there and so he just pops up everywhere in life and it's kind of impossible to avoid him and so my hope with this project is to explore some of his music where I think his real genius shines through 
Um, cause for me, it's indisputable that what he did in the world of music and the actual music he wrote is kind of incredible and jaw dropping in many ways. Um, and to not so much touch on the other elements of his character, which are no less important, but which I'm not an expert on. And I will leave you to explore those yourselves or to find other avenues where you can, can research them. One thing that I am very eagerly anticipating is Alex Ross, the, the music critic of The New Yorker. He has a forthcoming book coming out, I think, in September, all about Wagner. And I've already pre-ordered my copy because he's a phenomenal writer, and I'm just so looking forward to reading that. Um, and I'm sure that will deal with these questions, but that is not so much my task in the, this next month. I just want to give musical overviews of these operas in a kind of spark notes, summary-esque manner where we can break down the massive trajectories of these operas into a podcast where we can look at some of the most incredible moments of music, why they're incredible, what Wagner is doing there, explore this incredible system of harmony, leitmotifs, keys, all that kind of stuff in a language that all of our listeners will be able to understand. So it's a project I'm very, very excited about. I hope you are too. I look forward to seeing you over the course of of August for, for all of these breakdowns. And I hope amidst all of the craziness as always that we're staying safe, that you're wearing masks. I would love if uh, we didn't have to continue to live through this in this kind of interminable fashion. So be responsible, wear your mask, uh, you know, and do your research on Wagner and realize that, uh, the man was in many ways abhorrent, but also a fantastic composer. And so that's what we're going to focus on in these episodes. Thanks, as always, for sticking with us. And we will see you at the beginning of August for our breakdown of Das Rangel. All right, talk to you soon, everybody.